This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Pet Milk by Stuart Dybeck, which was published in The New Yorker in August of 1984. The radio, turned low, played constantly. Its top was warped and turning amber on the side where the tubes were. I remember the sound of it on winter afternoons after school, as I sat by her table watching the pet milk swirl and cloud in the steaming coffee. The story was chosen by Kate Walbert, who's the author of six books of fiction, including the novels A Short History of Women, The Sunken Cathedral, and His Favorites, which comes out this month. Hi, Kate. Hi, Deborah. So you chose a story by Stuart Dybeck to read today. Has his writing been important to you in your own career or life? (laughs) Well, (laughs) this story in particular um, has been important to me. I remember I first read it in the O. Henry Prize stories. It was in the anthology in, I think, 1986. And I was just struck by the fact that Dybeck had created a story out of what felt like a series of images as opposed to, you know, a complicated plot. And that the power of the images and the resonance and the repetition led to a kind of music in the story. It was so lyrical and poetic. So it was a revelation to me that stories could be made this way. It felt like a a kind of perfectly constructed story. And for me, uh, because I was just uh, getting out of graduate school and trying to write stories, it, it, it gave me permission almost to... Um, write a story from an image. Did you actually write a story that was based on this one? Not specifically based on this one, but I, I wrote stories that at the time I would call them my place stories, and I'd take myself back to a place and just try to remember the images that I didn't quite know what the meaning of the images were because I think that that would take the power away from them, but I would take myself back to a place or back to a memory of a place, and I'd try to put together different images and see what that juxtapositioning would lead to and allowed myself to follow those as opposed to having some kind of preconceived notion of, okay, I'm going to write a story about this or I'm going to write a story about that. I didn't know where they would go. Mm -hmm. And did they go in in similar directions to this one? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they didn't go in similar a similar direction. Uh, they would go in surprising directions. That was what was so exciting to me um, about trying to write that way. And you know, Dybeck is a poet as well as a fiction writer, so the poetry is just so clear in his work and and visceral. It's a wonderful thing to aspire to, but um, can't really be replicated (laughs) by anyone other than Dybeck himself, I think, much as one tries. (laughs) Was this the first story of his that you read? This was the first story of Dybeck's that I read. And and also, it probably was among the first, you know, I think at the time they were calling it sudden fiction, right? Um, Now it's often called flash fiction or short, short fiction, or there's been lots of different names for it. But I'm pretty sure it was one of the first short, short stories that Mm -hmm. I'd ever read. And that, too, was was permission-giving, you know. Well, we should um, maybe warn listeners that that pet milk is not milk for or coming from pets. It's actually a brand of 
condensed canned milk. Right. Um, uh, we didn't have it in our kitchen. I don't, I don't know if you had it in your kitchen. <laughs> Maybe it up. was specific to Chicago Maybe. or, you know, the Midwest or but, something. But the can is so iconic, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I can picture it so clearly. Okay. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Kate Walbert reading Pet Milk by Stuart Dybeck. Pet Milk. Today I've been drinking instant coffee and pet milk and watching it snow. It's not that I enjoy the taste especially, but I like the way pet milk swirls in the coffee. Actually, my favorite thing about pet milk is what the can opener does to the top of the can. The can is unmistakable, compact, seamless looking, its very shape suggesting that it could condense milk without any trouble. The can opener bites in neatly, and the thick liquid spills from the triangular gouge with a different look and viscosity. Pet milk isn't real milk. The color's off, to start with. There's almost something of the past about it, like old ivory. My grandmother always drank it in her coffee. When friends dropped over and sat around the kitchen table, my grandma would ask, Do you take cream and sugar? Pet milk was the cream. There was a yellowed plastic radio on her kitchen table, usually tuned to the polka station, though sometimes she'd miss it by half a notch and get the Greek station instead, or even the Spanish or the Ukrainian. In Chicago, where we lived, all the incompatible states of Europe were pressed together down at the staticky right end of the dial. She didn't seem to notice as long as she wasn't hearing English. The radio, turned low, played constantly. Its top was warped and turning amber on the side where the tubes were. I remember the sound of it on winter afternoons after school, as I sat by her table watching the pet milk swirl and cloud in the steaming coffee, and noticing, outside her window, the sky doing the same thing above the railroad yard across the street. And I remember, much later, seeing the same swirling sky in tiny liqueur glasses containing a drink called a King Alphonse. The creme de cacao rising like smoke in repeated explosions, blooming in kaleidoscopic clouds through the layer of heavy cream. This was in the Pilsen, a little Czech restaurant where my girlfriend Kate and I would go sometimes in the evening, It was the first year out of college for both of us, and we had astonished ourselves by finding real jobs, no more waitressing or pumping gas the way we'd done in school. I was investigating credit references at a bank, and she was doing something slightly above the rank of typist for Hornblower and Weeks, the investment firm. My bank showed training films that emphasized the importance of suitable dress good grooming, and personal neatness, even for employees like me, who worked at the switchboard in the basement. Her firm issued directives on appropriate attire. Skirts, for instance, should cover the knees. She had lovely knees. Kate and I would sometimes meet after work at the Pilsen, dressed in our proper business clothes and still feeling both a little self-conscious and glamorous as if we were imposters wearing disguises. The place had small, round oak tables, and we'd sit in a corner under a painting called The Street Musicians of Prague 
and trade future plans as if they were escape routes. She talked of going to grad school in Europe. I wanted to apply to the Peace Corps. Our plans for the future made us laugh and feel close, but those same plans somehow made anything more than temporary between us seem impossible. It was the first time I'd ever had the feeling of missing someone I was still with. The waiters in the Pilsen wore short black jackets over long white aprons. They were old men from the old country. We went there often enough to have our own special waiter, Rudy, after a while. Rudy boned our trout and seasoned our salads, and at the end of the meal, he'd bring the bottle of creme de cacao from the bar, along with two little glasses and a small pitcher of heavy cream, and make us each a King Alphonse right at our table. We'd watch as he'd fill the glasses halfway up with the syrupy brown liqueur, then carefully attempt to float a layer of cream on top. If he failed to float the cream, we'd get that one free. Who was King Alphonse anyway, Rudy? I sometimes asked, trying to break his concentration. And if that didn't work, I nudged the table with my foot so the glass would jiggle imperceptibly just as he was floating the cream. We'd usually get one on the house. Rudy knew what I was doing. In fact, serving the King Alphonse's had been his idea, and he had also suggested the trick of jarring the table. I think it pleased him, though he seemed concerned about the way I'd stare into the liqueur glass, watching the patterns. It's not a microscope, he said. Drink. He liked us, and we tipped extra. It felt good to be there and to be able to pay for a meal. Kate and I met at the Pilsen for supper on my 22nd birthday. It was May and unseasonably hot. I'd opened my tie. Even before looking at the dinner menu, we ordered a bottle of mums and a dozen oysters apiece. Rudy made a sly remark when he brought the oysters on platters of ice. They were freshly opened and smelled of the sea. I'd heard people joke about oysters being aphrodisiac, but never considered it anything but a myth, the kind of idea they still had in the old country. We squeezed on lemon, added dabs of horseradish, slid the oysters into our mouths, and then rinsed the shells with champagne and drank the salty, cold juice. There was a beefy-looking couple eating schnitzel at the next table, and they stared at us with the repugnance that public oyster eaters in the Midwest often encounter. We laughed and grandly sipped it all down. I was already half tipsy from drinking too fast and starting to feel filled with a euphoric, aching energy. Kate raised a brimming oyster shell to me in a toast. To the Peace Corps. To Europe, I replied, and we clunked shells. She touched her wine glass to mine and whispered, Happy birthday, and then suddenly leaned across the table and kissed me. When she sat down again, she was flushed. I caught the reflection of her face in the glass cupboard, the street musicians of Prague above our table. I always loved seeing her in mirrors and windows. The reflections of her beauty startled me. I had told her that once, and she seemed to fend off the compliment, saying, that's because you've learned what to look for. 
as if it were a secret I had stumbled upon. But this time, seeing her reflection hovering ghost-like upon an imaginary prog was like seeing a future from which she had vanished. I knew I'd never meet anyone more beautiful to me. We killed the champagne and sat twining fingers across the table. I was sweating. I could feel the warmth of her through her skirt under the table, and I touched her leg. We still hadn't ordered dinner. I left money on the table, and we steered each other out a little unsteadily. Rudy will understand, I said. The street was blinding bright, a reddish sun angled just above the rims of the tallest buildings. I took my suit coat off and flipped it over my shoulder. We stopped in the doorway of a store to kiss. Let's go somewhere, she said. My roommate would already be home at my place, which was closer. Kate lived up north in Evanston. It seemed a long way away. We cut down a side street, past a fire station to a small park, but its gate was locked. I pressed close to her against the tall iron fence. We could smell the lilacs from a bush just inside the fence, and when I jumped for an overhanging branch, my shirt sleeve hooked on a fence spike and tore, and petals rained down on us as the bush sprang from my hand. We walked to the subway. The evening rush was winding down. We must have caught the last express, heading toward Evanston. Once the train climbed from the tunnel to the elevated tracks, it wouldn't stop until the end of the line on Howard. There weren't any seats together, so we stood swaying at the front of the car, beside the empty conductor's compartment. We wedged inside, and I clicked the door shut. The train rocked and jounced, clattering north. We were kissing, trying to catch the rhythm of the ride with our bodies. The sun bronzed the windows on our side of the train. I lifted her skirt over her knees, hiked it higher so the sun shone off her thighs and bunched it around her waist. She wouldn't stop kissing, and she was moving her hips to pin us to each jolt of the train. We were speeding past scorched brick walls, gray windows, back porches outlined in sun, roofs and treetops, the landscape of the L I'd memorized from subway windows over a lifetime of rides, the podiatrist's foot sign past Fullerton, the bright pennants of Wrigley Field at Addison, ancient hotels with transients welcome signs on their flaking back walls, peeling and graffiti-smudged billboards, the old cemetery just before Wilson Avenue. Even without looking, I knew almost exactly where we were. Within the compartment, the sound of our quick breathing was louder than the clatter of tracks. I was trying to slow down, to make it all last, and when she covered my mouth with her hand, I turned my face to the window and looked out. The train was breaking a little from express speed, as it did each time it passed a local station. I could see blurred faces on the long wooden platform watching us pass, businessmen glancing up from folded newspapers, women clutching purses and shopping bags. I could see the expression on each face, momentarily arrested, as we flashed by. 
a high school kid in shirt sleeves, maybe 16, with books tucked under one arm and a cigarette in his mouth, caught sight of us. And in the instant before he disappeared, he grinned and started to wave. Then he was gone, and I turned from the window back to Kate, forgetting everything, the passing stations, the glowing late sky, even the sense of missing her. But that arrested wave stayed with me. It was as if I were standing on that platform with my school books and a smoke on one of those endlessly accumulated afternoons after school when I stood almost outside of time simply waiting for a train. And I thought how much I'd have loved seeing someone like us streaming by. That was Kate Walbert reading Pet Milk by Stuart Dybeck. The story appeared in The New Yorker in August of 1984 and was included in the collection The Coast of Chicago, which was published by Alfred A. Knopf in 1990. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Kate, the story touches on all of these different time periods, you know, distant past, the past, a sort of present past, and then there's even a present in which the narrator is drinking coffee and and looking back at these times. Um, How do you think Dybeck knits those different time periods together? Well, that's what's so extraordinary about this story. It is is just a story. You know, again, I I reread it quite often, but just to see its construction, even with the very beginning of the story, the first sentence has today, pet milk, and snow. And out of those three elements, he's actually— built an entire story. I think it's interesting, you know, you'd always get these rules for writing, and one of them is uh, never do a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. (laughs) And that's everything the story And that's essentially all the the, the rule that he's broken with the story, but somehow brilliantly manages to pull it off, which is, I guess, um, true of of most rules for writing fiction, right? Yeah. Um, So... Very soon into the story, he has, I remember, and then I remember. And so we're going back and then back again. Um, And the narrator sitting in that kitchen with his grandmother and watching the milk and the look of the milk, how it swirls and clouds and steams the coffee, and then going from that to the swirling sky, 
and the way later on we have the creme de cacao rising like smoke in repeated explosions. So there's there's a way in which Dybeck from the very beginning throughout is threading these different colors that accrue to that ending. It feels so whole and and true. It feels so composed. Um, I've read that Dybeck said when I first started writing, I thought it would be about saying something. I don't think that now. I think of writing as making something. I, I feel that that's so true of this story, that it is so fully made. Yeah. What's interesting, I asked him um, before doing this taping about the story and what he remembered about writing it. Mm-hmm. And he said, what I remember is that like several of my stories, it began as a poem or an attempted poem, hmm. a still life of a table with an oilcloth top, a radio, a coffee mug, a can of pet milk. I love still life paintings and was trying unsuccessfully to copy the still life effect in verse, the emotion that arises from light on objects. It was going nowhere. And one morning, I guess I asked myself why those objects anyway. And the grandmother entered the poem and then the railroad yard across the street, and suddenly a story was heading for a plate of oysters, and I let it go. <laughs> yeah. um, That's so fantastic, yeah. It's, a story it's, heading for a plate of oysters. It's interesting to think about the fact that the story came to him with something of the effect that it comes to us with, this sort of accumulation of details. Of objects, right. That then move into another place. Right, um, absolutely. Um, and and that's and that's so liberating uh, <laughs> to think of that um, words can have those histories. I mean, that's what I think is fantastic about all of his work. But again, seen in in Pet Milk, that the histories of the words, um, and he's somehow plumbing those histories, and that he can he just gives over the exploration of an image that then leads to this powerful payoff and seems. And you think, well, of course, of course it has to be that at the end. Um, and, if, and I think that there, you often think, oh, well, if it starts off this way, then of course that the writer knew that there would be this at the end. And, and I think there's a sense in this story, I, I felt it from the first time reading it, that it wasn't necessarily known, that mm-hmm. we were taking that journey with the writer. And that's what felt uh, so, so compelling about it. Right, and he he more or less confirms he that confirms he didn't that. didn't know where it was going. He didn't going. know where it was going. Well, I've also heard him use the expression "a chemical literary reaction." Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. Yeah, a chemical literary reaction, which I love because it reminds me of when you're shooting pool. One, you're gonna you're gonna get the momentum from one thing, one ball hitting the next, hitting the next, and and that's. I think the way this story was made and the way stories can be made. Yeah, I was trying to look at at all of the different time periods in here because you have that opening, which we don't, it doesn't get defined, but presumably it's 1984 or so when he's he's writing the story. Then you get this, you know, schoolboy at his grandmother's table. You even get a little bit of the grandmother's history. You know, she's there listening. She doesn't want to speak English. And she she's doesn't want to hear to these English. radio stations right. Right. from the sort of incompatible states of, right. of Europe. Also, a flashback to her youth. Then you get this: the girlfriend and this this dinner, and then at the very end, you get this schoolboy on the platform who is uh, potentially some form of embodiment of this narrator. 
himself watching himself going by. And in the beginning, you have the older form of the narrator watching himself, watching himself, watching himself. So there's this, this amazing layering. The amazing layering. And you also have the reflections. You have so many reflections. You have seeing and you have looking and you have so many reflections. You have Kate's reflection hovering ghost-like on an imaginary Prague in that Street Musicians of Prague painting. You have her in mirrors and windows. You have the him looking at the, starting it, as you point out, um, looking at the pet milk in the coffee. But then you even have Rudy making the reference, you know, it's not a microscope drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so not only are we being told that this by the narrator himself that this is the way he views the world or he travels through the world, we actually have a character commenting on it, which I think is fantastic, right? Because that just makes it that much more gives it that much more authority. Yeah. That even the character sees the way this guy just stares at things all the time <laughs> and, and stares into the past and, and stares into the past. And um that Ending, I think, I mean, that final image, the way that Dybeck managed to just break out of the moment and have, it's not, I I don't think it's specifically uh, a different narrator, but it almost feels like you get a different narrator. It almost feels like he successfully manages to go so far back in time that we see the narrator as a 16-year-old boy. And what I love about his, even the the choice, the word choice there, when he says, and in the instant before he disappeared, and I love that disappeared. It's not, and in the, dist- in the instant before we passed, or I no longer saw him, it's he disappeared. And it's just like the word vanished that's used yeah, to great effect. Yeah. And it's just, it's this, it's this, again, it's this scrim of, what happened before, what's happening now, what will happen in the future. He also gets to this last not line about as if I were standing on that platform um, when I stood almost outside of time. Yeah. So I love that because yeah. Dybeck really tips his hat in that one <laughs> <laughs> and says, okay, reader, if you didn't get it before, here it is now, you know, right. outside of time. Yeah. And then that the use of streaming by. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, it's kind of an odd word, streaming, to use. I mean, it could have been the, the, the L, you know, passing by or speeding by. But, of course, it has to be streaming because that links it back to the pet milk. And time. And time. Of time. And yeah. time. And the yeah. fluidity of time. And, and you know, how, how time sort of dissipates in the way that pet milk, I don't know. Maybe stretching, <laughs> <laughs> circular, circular swirling, swirling, swirling in liquid. Yeah, it's a rock thrown into a lake. You know, it's just it just the the fluidity of that. He he gets the fluidity of time, and that's just extraordinary. You Something know. being poured poured out in, right. in measured moments. And right. He also does something really interesting with nostalgia in the story because the story essentially is. Nostalgia. I mean, there's so much nostalgia in here, and it right. and it, it it has that Proustian thing. You know, the pet milk is is the right. Madeleine. It, <laughs> right, exactly. It, it pours out, and instantly you're taken back to right. these moments that are so vivid. But he tells us several times that in the moment he's missing that moment. <laughs> you know, yes, anticipating yeah, right. 
nostalgia and experiencing it before right. he's lost these things. Right. That line of the first time I had the sense of missing someone that I was still that with. I was still with. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's a character who's who's not only so aware of the past, but incredibly intensely aware of the near future. Right. The immediate future. Right. That this um, will all be gone. Yeah. That yeah. this will be over. And this sort of experiences anticipatory loss constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Except when he's that schoolboy imagining a future in which he's, you know, making out with his beautiful girlfriend on a right. train. <laughs> and right. And how fabulous that would be. Right. <laughs> what a thing that would be to yeah. see. Yeah. But it's just it's just a really particular moment. It is this it's this crystal moment, yeah. right? It's it's so um it's so precise. It's so precise. There's something interesting to me too in the in the sort of the conversation that he and Kate have at the at the dinner table where they're you know, they can't see themselves as anything other than temporary, but they've They've just made this one big transition, graduating from college, getting real jobs, you know, earning real money, having to wear real clothes and right. and and feeling adult. And yet still in their minds, this is a completely transitory phase. They can't think of this being the future, so they have to come up with other plans for the future. Normally, they've just you would think they've just done their big transition and now they're thinking of of this as their life. So why do you think that that they have that <laughs> that feeling <laughs> attitude, but right? I yeah. can't possibly be doing this for the rest of my life. Maybe it's that. And they even use the word imposters. Yeah. Like we're imposters here right now. I think it's perhaps getting back to that that idea of the fluidity of time, and that you even when you're in it, even when you're in that moment, you cannot accept that moment for what it is. You're 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 in the future or you're in the past. You're yeah. not in the time. One thing I think that's that's interesting is that the narrator, when they're in the train, the landscape of the L is a landscape he's memorized. He's not looking at it. So it's not that's not even being in the moment of no, seeing. No, no, he right? knows it from you know he knows his childhood past rides. rides. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I think they're imposters in their life because they can't be in the moment of their life because that moment is always interrupted. It's always interrupted. And perhaps it's something just in the nature of sort of childhood and youth that you're always looking to the next step. You're you're going to get through school. You're going to finish school. You're going to finish college. You're going to then you're going to do something. Then you're going to do this. That you it's all anticipation. And now this, you know, narrator in 1984, um he's done all those things. Right. So now he's right. not looking and, to the future. And anymore. now it's today, right? Yeah, the first today. word today. And we don't we don't know. It might be nineteen eighty four, it might be two thousand and twenty four. You know, it might have been a projection. <laughs> I guess it couldn't be that. But um but it's not specific and, yeah. and it's it's still illusory. Yeah. I was reading an interview in the Nashville Review and he said the writer, instead of trying to give you exposition, is in fact trying to recreate the emotional power of memory. He was talking about flashbacks. Mm-hmm. The, the goal of writing here, as in Proust, is to do that impossible thing, which is to go back where the dead are and recreate some experience whose fuel we're still running on, even if it's just fumes. Mm-hmm. So it's that idea, again, of this sort of smoke swirling through to a future, right. at which point it's still keeping you going, right? even though to 
go to its source, you're going to the dead. Right, right. And again, the the histories of the words, right? That that embedded in 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 the um, in the sound of the radio, embedded in the look of the pet right. milk, embedded embedded in just that description is the past. Yeah, yeah. Pet milk itself is a metaphor. You know, he says it, it isn't real milk. It the color's real. off. Right. <laughs> There's it's something ivory. of the past about right. it, right? You know, right. And, it, and it's, it's sort of coloring the memories makes you question, were things, was Kate so beautiful? Right. Or are we seeing all of this through a kind of smoke of, you know, rose-tinted lens? Right. That nostalgia question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe nostalgia just has a bad rap as a word, <laughs> but um, but I I just find find it so vivid that when I think of nostalgia, sometimes I think that's seeing through the the tinted glasses somehow. But this is so vivid, so clear. I believe him, mm-hmm. <laughs> or I believe the narrator. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of ties in with what you were saying about the reflection. You know, Kate. Is only her beauty is only seen in reflection, in reflections in memory. Sort of looking at her directly, she, she even she says it's, you've figured out how to find it, how to see right this beauty. It's not something you might just see right. head on. You well, have to really, see it sort of in a mirror. Right. He, he may not believe that. She believes that. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't really see her. No, you know we don't she. See her. She. We don't really see her. I would, you know, and it's and that's when when I when I read the story for the millionth time, you know, I think, for me, it's so much about that last image of the, of the young boy in the station looking at them. I see him almost more vividly than I see Kate and I see the narrator. And, and that's what we've got. That's, that's, that's where we've ended up, in a way, yeah. through, through the following of the images, through the following of the objects, through the through the way that those words have have influenced and fed and sprung one from the other, we've gotten back to the narrator as a boy. And yeah. that's the boy I see most vividly. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, I mean, Dybeck's first collection was Childhood and Other Neighborhoods. You know, I mean, he definitely, he's definitely focused on his childhood and, and um, writes a lot about children. And there seems to be this great looking back. Yeah. It's interesting that the moment at which he sees the boy on the platform is the moment where he says, I'm trying, he's trying to slow it all down. Right, right. Um, and so he looks out the window in an attempt to slow everything down that's happening. <laughs> he's know, really slowing the, it down. In the conductor's department. <laughs> and suddenly he sees, you know, himself perhaps right. from seven or eight years earlier. Right, right. Uh, he's not only slowed it down, he's gone backwards. He's gone way back. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to... Um, you know, when you talk about him writing about his childhood, the the other thing he he's very focused on and writes about constantly is Chicago, right? And this this landscape it's very specifically located. Yes, he's he's everything is set in Chicago, and he's considered one of the great Chicago writers. Certainly, um, I think I I saw that Studs Terkel called him the Bard of the Blue Collar. So. <laughs> Um, but I th- I think he's he's to Chicago what Grace Paley for me is to New York. I mm-hmm. mean he's got these these characters that that roam the street, often children, um, and they observe and chronicle the changing landscape. You know they're they're on the train tracks. They see the rust. They see what's been torn down, what's been built up. 
and and they move among these old world characters as well. The old world world characters are often, you know, very dark. Um, often, often he works with sort of extremes. It seems to me. Oh, here you have Rudy, who's right, not so dark. He's he's really you no, know yeah. trying to encourage these <laughs> <laughs> these kids to to have their alcohol and you know yes, <laughs> yes. stop daydreaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stop looking into the creme de cacao. But you know, I mean, he's been compared to Kafka and Bruno Schultz, and um, there's a there's a kind of fairy tale folkloric quality about the neighborhoods of Chicago. Something sort of magical. Something yeah. magical, not quite magical realism, I would say, but sometimes things happen, even in the way of um, Cheever with the enormous radio. You know, mm-hmm. it was just something. Something. I guess he studied with Cheever. I read at Iowa, but sometimes. Something happens that's just not quite what you would expect or what's not quite realistic. So these great flights of imagination. Yeah. Here we're mostly within realism except that it is a tinted realism. Right. Right. And tinted tinted by memory. Tinted by memory. Yeah. Yeah. I had the his his shortest shortest story from Ecstatic Cahoots. I thought I could <laughs> throw in there. <laughs> okay. Have you read it? This, I'm not sure. This is it. It goes like this. You're going to leave your watch on? You're leaving on your cross? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I don't know whether to call it a poem or a story. You know, <laughs> and, and I think he's, he's always on that borderline. He's always you know? on that borderline. And then, you know, that there's, and, and has made the dis- distinction between compression and minimalism. Um, there's an enormous compression in, yeah. in, yeah. in, in the, the sentences and um, in, in the way of poetry. Yeah, well, there's nothing minimalist about pet milk. No, there's not, it's, which it's, is amazing. It's right? maximalist. <laughs> how, how how did he do that? I yeah. mean, it's, a, it's 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 how many paragraphs, and and yet somehow everything's there. Yeah, in the finest detail. And I'm so jealous to hear that he just was thinking about a landscape. <laughs> still alive. <laughs> I got to get life. to the museum. It was a still life, and then it started life. moving. <laughs> you know, and swirling that's a and good streaming. Day. That's a good day of writing. Let exactly. me tell you that right now. Because <laughs> often nothing moves. Yeah. But movement is 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 the word, right? Yeah. Movement is the word there because somehow um, those images clashing one against the other, the juxtaposition gives that movement, that sense of movement. And that's really, that's in the end what a story does, right? It, you feel like you want to follow it because it's moving yeah. <laughs> as opposed to just splat on the desk. Exactly. Thank you so much, Kate. Oh, thank you. Stuart Dybeck is a poet and fiction writer whose story collections include Paper Lantern Love Stories and Ecstatic Cahoots, 50 Short Stories. He was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2007. Kate Walbert is the author of the story collection Where She Went and five novels, including his favorites, which will be published this month. You can download more than 130 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Cece Packer reads Stuart Dybeck's story, Paper Lantern, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>